Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Jeremy Scahill, one of the founding editors of The Intercept, is in town. He's the author of Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army, about Eric Prince, who we'll talk about in a second, and Dirty Wars, The World is a battle Battlefield. And Jeremy's podcast, which you might have heard, is called Intercepted, and there is a live version of it tonight at the Logan Square Auditorium as part of the Third Coast Festival Presents series. And we will talk about his stunning lineup that he has today, this all-star Chicago lineup and a lot of other things. Nice to see you. It's great to be back. I wanted to ask, first of all, about uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, uh, the U.N. ambassador, resigned today. And she is interested in some of the things that you are interested in. She is, uh, you've written prolifically about Yemen, and she was the person in the administration who wanted to have a commission of inquiry about Yemen when it was proposed at the United Nations. She was the only one. She had some human rights elements to her. She uh, spoke out forcefully against Bashar Assad. Um, what, do, what does the administration lose by losing Nikki Haley? Well, I mean, for, first of all, it's a sign of the times uh, that we're living in that someone like Nikki Haley is referred to as a moderate Republican. And, you know, compared to John Bolton or Trump, you could make that argument. But our whole perspective has become so warped by this moment we're in with Trump, where any official, you know, short of like flinging dung at reporters is considered to be a, a reasonable, normal person. Nikki Haley is not a moderate. In fact, if you look at her posture on Iran at the United Nations, I mean, she basically, the Onion, I think, put it best. They almost don't even have to invent quotes anymore, you know, that uh, Nikki Haley insists Iran, uh, that the U.S. won't stop until Iran no longer exists. I mean, it sort of is true. She wants carpet bombing of Iran. You mentioned Yemen. The United States has pursued a policy that now under Trump, I, I would say, is bordering on genocidal uh, in terms of supporting the Saudis, uh, the Emiratis, um, and, you know, Britain and the U.S. are actively involved with utterly destroying the poorest country in the Arab world. So, you know, your listeners will watch CNN or uh, or other mainstream corporate networks, and you'll hear about a moderate departing the administration. That has to be calibrated to the moment that we're in. By any reasonable standard in American history, Nikki Haley is is an extremist. But under Trump, she appears to be – she speaks the English language proficiently. She talks you know. about human rights She talks about human rights. But the, but again – and you know, it's very easy. You and I could, could you know, beat up on Trump until we're blue in the face. But in general, the politics of the U.S. empire stay the same under Democrats and Republicans. What has changed under Trump is the, the very dangerous rhetoric. And I don't discount that because – because wars can start over words. And Trump's Twitter feed uh, at numerous times has taken us to, I, I think, the brink of war with North Korea. Now, Trump has, has unexpectedly taken a path that I actually think could work um, you know, with North Korea. But it's very reckless and dangerous how we've gotten to this point. And you know, Trump will say he's, you know, it's, it's the art of the deal. When, you're, when you possess a nuclear arsenal, when you're considered widely to be the kind of leader of the free world – you don't operate like Trump operates. Like this, this isn't some scam you and your dad are running in New York real estate. This is life and death issues around the world. What do you think the next UN ambassador faces? I've been thinking about it, and the Trump administration is going to unveil some sort of Middle East peace plan that they're cooking up with the Saudis, and the new UN ambassador will have to carry that to the United Nations, where it will be hugely unpopular. It looks like uh, something that is just going to be thankless to do, Maybe maybe that was a factor. 
You know, I, I mean, I think that the key player that we need to discuss in all of this is John Bolton. He is Trump's national security advisor. He is one of the most famous uh, neocons. He's never met a war, a U.S. war he didn't want other people's children to fight. Um, and I, I would imagine, I don't have any inside sources on this, I would imagine that Nikki Haley sort of hit a point with John Bolton where she was like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. So look for John Bolton who, of course, is in one of the only non-Senate confirmed powerful national security positions that exist, and he wouldn't have been confirmed by the Senate, uh, even with the Republicans. Uh, but look for John Bolton to be trying to handpick someone who is from the far right of the of the neocon crowd. Now, Trump you may, you know, <laughs> there, there's people talking about, oh, he, Ivanka would be a good uh, UN ambassador. Tr- Trump may have some weird idea, maybe Kim Kardashian or Kanye, <laughs> but, but look for John Bolton. He really is the power broker here. I'm talking with Jeremy Scahill, one of the founding editors of The Intercept. He's in town for a podcast uh, event this tonight at the Logan Square Auditorium with his podcast, Intercepted. I wanted to, before we talk about that, I want to ask you a question about what's going on with Eric Prince these days. He made a lot of news with his tour of Afghanistan earlier this month, where he is trying to sell the Afghans on a privatized uh, entity like his to be um, to be the fighting force in Afghanistan that will beat back the Taliban. Uh, this is really interesting. And uh, I guess the Afghans meet with him because he is perceived as powerful in with Trump. His sister is the education secretary, which I always say, Betsy DeVos is Eric Prince's yeah. sister. And every time I do, people say, what? I didn't know that. I know. It's 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 remarkable. And and just, just to remind people that in the 1990s, when the what became known as the radical religious right was rising up, there were two families, Midwestern families uh, from Michigan, that were the bankrollers of it. It was the Prince's and the DeVos's. The DeVos family, of course, the the owners of the Orlando Magic basketball team and uh, creators of the Amway Corporation that some people allege is was sort of a pyramid scheme. Now, I'm, I'm not alleging that, but if you, if you read about it, it's controversial how they made their money. So Eric Prince then wants to do for the U.S. military what his sister wants to do for education, which is to privatize it all. Prince's forces uh, killed many civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. Lo and behold, Donald Trump uh, gets the nomination uh, to be the Republican candidate for president, and you start seeing Eric Prince pop up at gatherings. In fact, Eric Prince was with Trump and Pence the night that the election results came in. People say, oh, Betsy DeVos uh, is is responsible for getting Eric Prince in with Trump. I would say it's probably the opposite. I I think Eric Prince uh, is much more powerful than his sister politically. Uh, much more in the in the weeds. He hated H.R. McMaster, the original national security advisor. McMaster uh, wouldn't even put the pr- proposal for privatizing the war on the president's desk. Now you have John Bolton who has said, oh, I think it might be a good idea. So what, what you're seeing, Jerome, is Eric Prince doing what he's always done, trying to find a way to make a buck while representing one of the most extreme strands of political and military thinking in the United States. And Prince as we know from the Seychelles meetings, people need to remember this. Eric Prince goes to the Seychelles. He meets with Kirill Dmitriev, who's head of an enormous uh, Russian government investment fund around the world, and says, oh, you know, like, kind of like Kavanaugh, oh, we just had some beers. Well, it looks like Prince was involved with something that does resemble a back-channel discussion on behalf of the Trump administration. So it may seem outlandish. The Afghan government and, and the Taliban are on the same page. They're both <laughs> saying no to Eric Prince. Um, but Eric Prince always finds he's at the end of the world there will be you know cockroaches and eric prince i mean he he seems to always survive and you know 
he's he's out there and he's doing his thing. Is there he relocated his business outside of the United States? First it went now? to Abu Dhabi and now Jerome and this is this is stunning given everything we're learning now about Trump and corruption etc or that a lot some people already knew. Eric Prince's main business partner right now are powerful people from the Chinese government, including members of China's Central Committee of the Communist Party. His uh, Frontier Services Group is a Hong Kong registered company that is working with China. China has never been one to deploy troops in Africa, for instance, to engage in natural resource extraction. That's something the United States does, but not China. Eric Prince and China are now working on a plan so that the Chinese government can extract natural resources from the east of Africa using privatized forces. It's very similar to what Prince pitched Cheney and Bush early on in the war on terror. But he's working for China right now. <laughs> well, are Great any, American. Are there any outstanding charges against Blackwater or his corporation in this country now? There, there, are, there are criminal charges against some of his men. And, you know, I support those prosecutions. But, you know, it's, it, it's similar to what happened with Abu Ghraib. You know, you go, you go lowest down the line to the people that physically did the torture, but you don't hold accountable those that authorized it. Um, my understanding from sources, and we've been reporting on this for several years at The Intercept, uh, is that both the FBI and the CIA are – have been looking into Eric Prince for his contacts with Chinese intelligence. He is uh, also under some form of non-announced investigation, meaning that it's not public, but but our sources are definitive on this, uh, for money laundering using bank accounts in Macau. Now, he denies this. Um, he threatens to sue us every time we print it. But our response to him always is uh, truth is an absolute defense. And if we aren't telling the truth, you should sue us. I'm talking with Jeremy Scahill from The Intercept, and he's in town to uh, do an edition of his Intercepted podcast. It is tonight at the Logan Square Auditorium as part of the Third Coast Festival Presents series. There is a stunning all-star lineup of Chicagoans, <laughs> uh, Eve Ewing, uh, the Invisible Institute founder, Jamie Calvin, who was uh, so crucial in the recent uh, prosecutions that uh, we just saw in Chicago, uh, Youth Project 100 director Charlene Carruthers, and educator Bill Ayers. In, I would say you got too much show. <laughs> we may have too much show, but you know, I was I was born in Chicago, and hope, hopefully, listeners will forgive me. I grew up in Milwaukee, but it's because my my, uh, my my parents relocated there. They're both nurses. Um, and when we were talking about doing a Chicago show, first of all, I wanted to uh, highlight voices that are on the front lines of of two basic. Uh, trends here in Chicago. One is 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 the war in public schools and the kind of neoliberal uh, uh, institutions that were run by Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and the other is police brutality, police unaccountability, racism. Chicago remains, as Milwaukee does, um, a very segregated city, and the president of the United States, including last night, constantly uses Chicago as as a sort of whipping pole. And, and it's really – it's not a dog whistle. It's a foghorn for racism. What he means is there are two kinds of, uh, of gun ownership in this country and one of them is not acceptable. And you know, Donald Trump believes that guns should be possessed by white people, especially white people with badges. Uh, but it's, it's really his way of saying black people shouldn't have guns and look what happens in a place like Chicago. He says it all the time. He uses Chicago in, in, when what he's really talking about is black people. That's how he uses Chicago. I'm, I'm sorry, but I think that's the – I believe that that's the truth from every, everything we know about him in public. It's interesting that your work, no matter if it's um, in Iraq with Blackwater, it seems to come down to privatization, racism, uh, 
torture, uh, that they're the same thing here as other places. Well, and you know, look, uh, John Burge, um, I'm sure many people hope he's you know burning in a hot fire in hell right now, but the you know just passed away. Uh, this was a guy who cut his teeth in U.S. wars in Vietnam, and uh, he also was in Korea, comes back to uh, Chicago and appears to have just kind of adopted the counterinsurgency policies, including torture, that were widespread in Vietnam. People may remember the Phoenix program, you know, these, this so-called targeted killing operation. You know, Burge then takes these tactics, and he's not the only one. A lot of these guys became cops, um, you know, and they were explicitly torturing black men and uh, doing unconscionable things to him. And I, I still don't believe that Burge, even though he was fired, uh, even though there were investigations, I don't believe he ever was fully held accountable uh, for what he did in this city. Um, and you know, you, you you couple that with the fact that uh, people were executed in the state of Illinois who later were proven to be innocent. That's scandalous. That's something that to this day we should be talking about. Yes, the moratorium was put on the death penalty, but how do you make amends when you've killed an innocent person? How do you make amends when you've tortured uh, mercilessly tortured people. I mean, Burge, in a way, represents one of the darkest storylines of this city. What's your reaction to the Van Dyke trial and the verdict, and how much progress that represents? I don't, I don't know that Van Dyke five years ago would have been convicted. I mean, based on the on the evidence, um, I, th- I, th- I think that a reasonable jury would have come to the conclusion, particularly when you're talking about police officers saying, you know, I'm, I may have to shoot somebody in a sort of premeditated way. Now, it was a second degree murder conviction that the defense brought up, uh, excuse me, that the prosecution brought up in the 11th hour. Uh, first degree murder would have been a very tough charge. But I, I, I think, look, social movements, public pressure, uh, particularly black activists in Chicago, I think may it uh, so that uh, that conviction had to happen. Um, public pressure has always played a role in um, injustice, and I think it's appropriate. This isn't interfering uh, in a judicial process. This is trying to correct an injustice that is built in, particularly in the city of Chicago, to judicial processes involving the police. Um, you know, police. Now I think it's changing. I was talking last. I have a family member who represents police officers um, in civil cases. And I was talking to him last night, and he said that what they're noticing in court is that the public pressure, the awareness that's been raised is starting to change the dynamic so that the police are not immediately given the benefit of the doubt. That's a very different Chicago than it was 20 years ago. It was interesting. There was only one African-American on the jury, and a lot of people just looked at that and said, well, here, here, this is not going to be good. Look, I myself was thinking, uh, you know, I found myself you know, explaining to some high school students the other day what a hung jury is. You know, And if you look at... Uh, at U.S. history, it's. I, I was shocked, first of all, how quickly that verdict came back. Um, that it that they did convict on on, on anything uh, murder related. Curiously, the misconduct charges didn't stand. And I mean, I'm sure you're you're much more in the weeds on this than I am. But I, I wonder if I mean, maybe this is just me projecting. I wonder if the jury sort of said, well, maybe that is considered good conduct in the Chicago Police Department. I'm talking with Jeremy Scahill, and you can see him tonight. Now, what's going on at the Logan Square Auditorium? You've got all these people. Are you going to talk about um, this kind of stuff tonight? I mean, we're we're going to talk about race and Chicago. I want to talk about economics in Chicago also. I want to talk about why the housing projects here were built the way that they uh, were built and how that impacted the community economically. Um, But I want to ask our guests some of the same questions you're talking about. I want to hear from, you know, Charlene Carruthers has been on the front lines of struggles for racial justice in this city for 
some years. And I think she represents a much broader movement of young African-Americans in this country. And, you know, I'm, I'm over 40 now. I, can see, I have gray in my beard. Um, I believe in listening to young people and taking direction from them. You know, the old anti-war social justice left, one of the big mistakes I think people made coming out of that Vietnam War era was not taking on the issue of prisons and the carceral state um, and racism in this country. And and I, I think that all of the demonstrations we've seen, Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago as well, uh, it's a moment for those of us that have been around longer to sort of take a humility pill and, and look at what's ground zero, according to young people who are on the front line. So a big part of it is that we've been getting a lot of uh, of, of attacks because Bill Ayers is uh, is going to be on our platform. But it's all of the kind of Sarah Palin 2008 campaign variety. Why are you having a terrorist? Bill Ayers is a serious figure in Chicago with a history that extends far beyond the weather underground. Uh, this is a guy who has mentored so many teachers in Chicago, racial justice activists. Uh, and I think it's going to be fascinating to hear uh, from Bill Ayers where he sees things now and to have that juxtaposed with young African-American, Chicago-born um, activists, authors, artists. Um, and and I'm, I'm here to learn and listen. And, and that's one of my favorite. I haven't done radio in a long time. You do it every day, Jerome. Um, my favorite part of doing radio is listening. Me learning. too. Me too. Uh, the... Uh so you've got a few standing room only tickets tonight I think for we have this a, we, event. We opened up a few dozen because I was coming on your show, and and um, you know we, we just for worldview people, just for, for well radio. for worldview, yeah. But but um, I think we we opened up another thirty tickets that um, should be available now. If you, uh, you the, the easiest way to go to it, I guess, would be theintercept.com slash live, and and that'll take you take you to it. Um, but act quickly. This is just for Jerome's crowd. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for joining us. Jeremy Scahill, one of the founding editors of The Intercept. He's the author of Blackwater, The Rise of the Most Powerful Mercenary Army about Eric Prince and Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield. And you can see The Intercepted podcast tonight at the Logan Square Auditorium. And congratulations on the podcast. You're doing a great job. I'm really enjoying it. But it takes you away as a guest, which I miss. No, thank you, Jerome. And I always tell people this is the best show in the city. Coming up after the break, we will chat about why more people don't care. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Liberalism is under attack the world over. Lots of countries are turning towards extreme nationalism and strongmen leaders. In the U.S., there's a hope that the outrage expressed in the 2016 elections would lead to more civic engagement, more organizing, and a path towards democratic revival. Commentators tell us this is the most consequential midterms of our lives. But it's not clear that the Republican Party will suffer greatly from extreme positions on things like women, climate change, or the Charlottesville protest. And it's not that clear that there's a lot more civic engagement. We're going to talk about voter participation and participation in social movements. And I've been asking people uh, who are involved in social movements if they're seeing an increase in activity or not. And I've seen, had kind of a split decision. 
And I'm interested in people's opinion on this and whether they're seeing an increase in organizing or voter participation in their communities. If you have some tales from the front line, tell us what's going on at 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. With me for the discussion is Barbara Rainsby. She is the author most recently of Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. She's professor of history, African-American studies, and gender and women's studies, interim vice Provost for Planning and Programs at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Congratulations on the longest academic title of all times, Barbara. Good <laughs> well, to see you. Yeah, to update it, I'm no longer interim vice provost, oh, but that's <laughs> yeah, I have so, more time to do activism. Good. And also on the line with us is Ari Berman. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari's a senior reporter at Mother Jones, and he's doing an amazing job covering voting rights there. Thanks very much for joining us, Ari Berman. Thank you, Jerome. Ari, I wanted to start with you about voter participation. And, you know, I've been trying to read up on the statistics and see how much better we're doing or worse we're doing. And right, and there seems to be an uptick in voter registration around the uh, country. And in Cook County, where we're sitting, there's about 100,000 new voters out of 1.4 million voters regularly, which I don't see as that huge of an increase. It's, it's kind of a, what is that, 7% or something? an increase in in voters. And the thing that seems to be getting an enormous amount of voters to the polls and kind of frustrating me in the last few days is Taylor Swift. Um, Taylor Swift said that she was, uh, she had this Instagram post that she's voting for Democrats in Tennessee and urged people to register. And she saw um, 2,100 people register to vote in 36 hours. And that was as good as Tennessee had done in the whole month of September. Uh, what do you make of the du- the direction voting is going in this country? Are we seeing more people who want to do that? Well, I think if you look big picture, Jerome, first off, the United States consistently ranks near the bottom in terms of industrial democracies when it comes to voter turnout. We rank 31 out of 34 industrialized advanced democracies when it comes to voter turnout. And even at our best moments, voter turnout is usually around 60%. And for midterm elections, it's usually around 30 to 40%. So we have a lot of people sitting it out. And one of the things that I find frustrating as someone who covers voting rights is all of the discussion is always about voter apathy, that people don't care, or people are too lazy to show up, or they're not educated, or they don't bother and that voting is simple and if people would just participate, everything would work better. And in my mind, we're not confronting all the barriers that exist to people not being able to participate. So we have a quarter of Americans who aren't even registered to vote. So they don't get any sort of discussion when it comes to campaign time. We have 6.1 million Americans who can't vote because they have a felony conviction. So that's a whole nother segment of the society that might want to participate but who can't participate because they've made one mistake. We have millions of people who don't have the right IDs, so they can't participate in those states that require strict IDs. We have in 15 states today voter registration deadlines and some really important swing states, places like Pennsylvania and Georgia, for example, and Florida. And what that means is that it's now 29 days before the election. If someone decides to listen to your show in a week, let's say, and they want to get registered, they won't be able to register to vote in 15 states that are among the most important swing states in the country. So all of these things, whether it's felon disenfranchisement laws or it's voter registration deadlines or it's strict ID laws, all of these things are keeping millions of 
people from participating who otherwise might want to participate. And I feel like that kind of – that part of the discussion never gets enough attention. Well, do you discount the other part of the discussion that people feel like they don't have something to vote for? Uh, they don't have – a thing that is that represents what they want and that things won't change if they do vote. I think both can be true. I think it can be true that there are millions of people who want to participate who can't for one reason or another. And there also are people that are able to participate that choose not to because they feel frozen out of the two-party system or they feel like the people running for office don't matter to them or aren't speaking to their concerns or don't represent their communities. I think people have become more cynical in recent years because of things like Citizens United, the ability of billionaires to basically buy our elections through secret donations. I think decisions like that have made people uh, more skeptical of the political process. And so I, I, mean, I think it's both. I think it's both barriers and I think it's also just cynicism about the fact the political dynamics right now don't reflect their interests. Um, Ari Berman is with us. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Also with us is Barbara Rainsby, and she's been writing about uh, making all Black Lives Matter in her new book. Uh, how do you take this participation issue? Do you believe that um, people are going to, that motivation is changing and that people are going to have a, you know, reimagination of freedom in the 21st century. That's the that's the uh, subtitle of your book. Right. Well, of course, you know, as an activist, I'm I'm a I'm a historian and an activist and in writing this book, I spent a lot of time with the young organizers in the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives, and they are passionate, they are active, they are energized. Um, and I think voting is one measure of that. I really appreciate uh, Ari's comments and his work. Uh, some of the young people I write about in the book on the Dream Defenders, our organizers uh, in Florida that got energized around the Trayvon Martin murder and the exoneration of George Zimmerman. And they're very much involved in um, a campaign to get the ballot for people who are formerly incarcerated in Florida. So, so there are those kinds of campaigns. I think the, the activism manifests in voting and who shows up at the ballot box, but also in creative engagement with the electoral uh, arena, like the Bayanita campaign that uh, occurred here in Chicago that forced Anita Alvarez out um, without becoming necessarily cheerleaders for uh, another candidate. Um, Ari, you also have been writing about um, ways that voters get stricken from their the roles in different places. And I was uh, really surprised that things like Ohio is striking millions of people from the voter rolls and in proportions that are much larger than they used to. Can you give us some idea what's going on there? Yeah, so what Ohio has done and the Supreme Court upheld that this year is they have purged uh, 1.5 million people from the voter rolls. And what they've done is they have actually used non-voting as a reason for why you can be purged from the voting rolls. So usually you're only removed from the voting rolls if you've done something to make yourself ineligible, meaning you've moved or you've died or you've committed some sort of crime that would cause you to lose your voting rights. But in Ohio, what happens is if you miss an election, you don't respond to a mailer from the state and then you miss two more elections, you are then removed from the voter rolls. And this is concerning because we're talking about voter participation. Let's say someone decides that for one reason or another, they don't want to vote. They're not inspired by the candidates or something else is going on their lives. Then they decide to get reactivated. And I think that happens all the time. They get reactivated. And let's say they voted in 2008, but they didn't vote for the next few elections. And they want to vote in 2016. Well, 
they have been removed from the voter rolls in Ohio, uh, even though they didn't do anything wrong. And and to me, that is worrisome. And, and the purges of the voting rolls go beyond that. People uh, have been removed because they've been caught up in this database run by the Kansas Secretary, Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, that searches for double voting, and it spits out a lot of what's called false positives. So if you're John Smith in Iowa, you could be confused with John Smith in Kansas and be accused of double voting and be purged from the rolls because of inaccurate uh, databases. Uh, and so this is another thing where there are people that want to participate and they show up and then they're not on the rolls. And if your state doesn't have Election Day registration, there's nothing you can do about it to try to alleviate that problem. We're going to take a phone call, and the number to call is 312-923-9239. And we're asking people about activism and whether they're seeing it in their communities, if they're seeing an uptick or not. And Laura, you're on WBEZ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, so just a little bit about myself as far as background. i um one-time activist and voter. I've been voting ever since uh, I turned 18, 1980. I used to work for League of Women Voters. I've been a deputy registrar. I was recently a Bernie Sanders delegate. And what I want to talk about is a um, subject that I don't hear come up often enough, and it's how we're approaching people who are non-voters who have never voted or who are infrequent voters. And I see a lot of vote shaming. Um, I think that's a common term that's being used among those who are politically active. And um, the reality is that, yes, voter disenfranchisement has worked. I mean, I have met people canvassing who don't even know when elections are being held because they've been given misinformation um, or, you know, all, all other kinds of misinformation about voting itself and about elections, even if they wanted to. But what I don't see happening a lot is actually just asking people who don't vote or vote infrequently questions and just trying to listen to what their reasons are. And a lot of times they don't know the reasons. So if you have a really honest conversation where you're not trying to persuade them to do anything, a lot of times you can get at the reasons and they figure it out for themselves. And when I've had those conversations, sometimes they end up saying that they will consider voting. Because they actually had a conversation with someone who was not trying to badger them how, how or many, shame them in any way. How many people do you think um, don't think voting is a main method of accomplishing political change? I was reading a quote from a guy named Jonas Rand on NPR, and he says that he doesn't believe that voting is a main method of accomplishing political change, and the system is stacked against the citizenry. And, um, you know, he just doesn't – that's his thing. He does uh, – people just don't want to see this as a vehicle for change. I, I think that's really true, um, that people do have uh, cynicism. And some of the cynicism is warranted, right? People vote year after year and politicians make promises and don't deliver. Um, and so, so I understand that. And I think we really have to recalibrate our expectations in terms of voting, right? So a number of people said they weren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton because they were Bernie supporters because it was the lesser of two evils. But, of course, we do want less evil in the world if, if, that's, your, if that's your position. I think we have expectations that voting will magically transform, and it won't. We have to be voters plus. We have to vote because it's a practical uh, way to change the, the landscape in an immediate sense. But we also have to understand that in some ways with all the money in politics and with all the billionaires funding candidates, that, that the system is somewhat rigged. But that means that we have to do activism beyond the ballot box. 
Um, Laura, do you run into people like uh, Jonas that I was talking about there? Well, I am one of those people. I've always been um, an activist first, as well as a voter. And what I would say is I've seen over time, I used to be on a board for pro-choice issues uh, back in the early 90s. And I've seen over time how even the people I vote for will not even listen to us. They won't they won't even give us appointments if we are in any way challenging them. And I'm talking about Democrats. Um, so I think everything has changed because of campaign financing. And frankly, the reason I got involved with Bernie is because I'm for public funded elections. And, and even the most strident conservative, uh, radical conservative agrees with me on this when I bring this subject up. So I think this is why I say we need to listen to non-voters, because I think they have the most honest view of our system right now. And I absolutely think that if we can get more people involved in the very successful movements like Black Lives Matter, like Fight for 15, like the you know battle um, for you know immigrant rights, uh, I think then they see the relationship between getting the right people in office who will who they can then hold accountable. Yeah, I, I think it's a both and, though, Laura. Like you, I'm, I've been an activist since I was a teenager. I really believe in uh, engaging one-on-one. I believe that protest has not gone out of style. I believe that forming consensus in small grassroots organizations is really you know, the cornerstone of real democracy. Uh, but I think we, what we've learned from um, the 2016 presidential election, if, if nothing else, is that the landscape for activists can also dangerously change uh, if we uh, abst- you know, abstain from voting. So I think voting is a part of a political calculus. But if it's all we do, um, we're not going to get very far, but I don't think we can rule it out. And a lot of young sure. activists I work with are actually working in campaigns like Stacey Adams uh, in Georgia and um, uh, Gillum in, in Florida. And this weekend, in fact, uh, the Women's March in Chicago at 10 o'clock in Grant Park uh, is having a kind of march to the polls, another mass mobilization, which is talking about voting plus, not voting only. And they've got a first-time voter experience at Michigan and Jackson and all the rest. Um, Ari, did you want to weigh in there before we go to the Yeah, I, I did want to weigh in because uh, Martin Luther King famously said that voting wasn't the ball game, but it got you in the arena, meaning it was the first step towards change. That you, There's a lot of things that you need to do in addition to voting, but if you don't vote, it makes it harder to do those other things. And I focus a lot on the local level, so on state races. And I've been trying to get people to focus on a lot of these races. And state races is where your vote really matters. State legislative races, for example, uh, are incredibly narrow. And it's state legislatures that write voting laws, which then determine how many people can participate. Uh, Barbara mentioned a lot of the Black Lives Matter organizers. There was debates within those movements about voting and the power of voting. And there were people that were very cynical about the political process and their ability to change it. At the same time, a lot of those organizers have worked on local DA races where not a lot of people vote. And they've been able to affect a tremendous amount of change whether it's in Chicago or in St. Louis, in terms of uh, getting rid of longtime incumbents who are viewed as completely untouchable, part of big city machines. And those elections changed because people got involved. So these things are not 
static. The system is not forever rigged in one direction. It can be rigged, but it can also change in terms of people's ability to get involved. And I think if people vote in local races, if they vote in their DA race, if they vote in their state legislative race, if they vote for secretaries of state and for governors, that's really where they can have an impact. And I think it's important that as all the talk is about Trump and then secondarily about Congress, that we don't forget about all of these state races that people too often ignore where their vote really matters the most. Ari Berman's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Barbara Rainsby is the author of Making All Black Lives Matter. We are going to come back after the break and we'll talk a little more about whether social movements have seen an increase in participation. If you have seen an increase or decrease in participation, we'd like to hear from you and the social movement you're in. The number to call is 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. We're all bored. We're all so tired of everything. We wait for trains that just aren't coming. We show off our different scarlet letters. Trust me, mine is better. We're so young, but we're on the road to ruin. Conversation continues on Worldview in just. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about why more Americans don't vote, don't get more socially engaged. With me is Barbara Rainsby. She's a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and she's the author of Making All Black Lives Matter, and Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Um, I wanted to Kind of move, we talked about voting mostly in the first part and uh, social movements. Um, you're talk, writing about Black Lives Matter, which has seen this incredible um, movement come and take uh, make an impact. Um, is that? Um, it, it, do you see that across other other places? You know, in climate change, there seems to, there seems to be a movement, but the impact it makes is so slow, and people don't seem to care. They don't don't be don't don't be they aren't engaged. All sorts of things um, have, are kind of spin their wheels. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen. You know, maybe I'm glass half full, but uh, I see an uptick in activism. And I think we also have to um, ask the question, how do we measure winning? So every victory is not an immediate victory. Sometimes we're shifting how people think. Sometimes we're putting issues on an agenda that wouldn't be there otherwise. But, um, you know, across a whole number of, of platforms and sectors, um, organized committees against uh, organized communities against deportations here in Chicago have kept the immigration issue alive and brought in a lot of new uh, activists. The um, uh, Grassroots Alliance for Global Justice uh, is a is a climate change group, and some of these groups are coalescing in interesting ways. I was at uh, a march in Washington last weekend, the movement, uh, a march for Black women, excuse me, and there were lots of different forces there. The focus was Black women, but uh, it, we were talking about how climate change, how unemployment, how a whole number of issues uh, impact not only Black women but others. There's a new coalition that has emerged out of the Black Lives Matter movement called the Majority, which is bringing together people in many of these different issues around uh, anti-war issues as well as immigration and climate change. Now, in your book, you you write about some of the frustration about more 
uh, social groups not getting together. Uh, there is a symbiosis between U.S. US and European capitalism, empire, white supremacy, and heteropatriarchy. This is an understanding for a basis of unity, not fragmentation. If only the various white-led left and labor organizations could truly internalize these historical truths, the political possibilities would be enormous. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I consider myself a feminist very much in a black feminist tradition of intersectionality, and I know we need a shorter term to capture that. But what that suggests is that there's an interrelationship between different systems of oppression. And rather than seeing that as a, a point of fragmentation or uh, groups you know, being divisive, I see it as a unifying platform because none of us have a single identity. We're all multiple things. We're all impacted by multiple things. And so black feminism has often said, you know, none of us can be free until all of us are free. And so, again, I think that's a platform that, that the left could embrace. But one of the things that has um, – been a stumbling block for coalitions has been the issue uh, of race. So, for example, in August 2016, the Black Lives Matter movement, the larger rubric is the Movement for Black Lives, um, came out with a document called uh, A Vision uh, for Black Lives. And it included a whole range of issues from dealing with mass incarceration, uh, immigration, etc. That's a platform that the left could embrace, but there's been resistance to that uh, on the left. I want to go to a quick caller. Uh, L, you're on WBEZ. Yes, hi. This is uh, Ellen Corley. Um, yeah, I I originally called in with a question. You know how how could we get our state to to um, allow same day voting, which or all states? You know if that could be mandated. But as I'm listening, you know the question about are we getting more more social justice? I um, I became a social justice anti corruption activist focusing first on organizing for action and stopping gun violence, but and then move to the Chicago Alliance Against Racist Political Repression. But I've become discouraged that the impact as an activist is so slow, and I actually feel like the politicians, you know, the party is not bringing activists in so that we can't influence it from above. And that, that feels like the corruption problem, you know, that New, the activists are not running for office. You know, I've actually said I want to run for mayor, you know, but I don't feel like there's a party there that really wants to bring in whistleblowers, activists. So um, that's my comment. Um, Ari, do you have some thoughts about that? Uh, do you see a, a lack of activism, activists trying to get into real live ballot situations? So two points that the caller raised. The first was about election day registration. And I'm glad she brought that up because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 15 states are going to cut off their voter registration deadlines today. And that's going to suppress thousands of people who otherwise want to participate from participating. In, in Illinois, states that you have, can. You can go up on uh, election day and, and register. In Illinois, you can. And states that have election day registration have voter turnouts of up to 10% higher than states that don't. And the top six states for voter turnout in 2016 all had election day registration. Now, that's not obviously enough. You have to have candidates that people want to vote for. You have to have a competitive political system. But I think the one rule that we know really does increase turnout is election day registration. The other thing I will say is that activists are running for office and they are influencing who 
the candidates will be. And Barbara mentioned the Dream Defenders in Florida as one example, and I, I think it's even bigger than that. But you have a lot of young African American activists in the state of Florida who have been very involved in overturning their state system of felon disenfranchisement, which I wrote about in a new article for Mother Jones. But there's actually an initiative on the ballot that would restore voting rights to 1.4 million ex-felons in Florida, which is 10% of the electorate there. An absolutely enormous number of people are disenfranchised. And it was young activists getting involved who put that on the ballot. It was young activists getting involved who helped Andrew Gillum win a Democratic primary for governor that nobody thought he would win. And now he has the potential to be the first black governor in Florida's history. And again, he's not going to solve everyone's problem. You have to hold people accountable once they're elected. But having a progressive Democrat elected as the first black governor in Florida history is going to allow certain people to be part of the conversation who have heretofore been excluded by people like Rick Scott, who have been running that state. So I think activists are running for office. You look at what happened in Virginia in 2017 in their state legislative elections. You had the first uh, trans legislator elected, for example. In a lot of states, you had the first Latina elected officials, first uh, African-American elected officials still in many places. So people are running for office, and I think people are getting more involved in state in, races. In a lot in of those particular. situations, they run against the party picked candidate they they run against they they have to the run against the people that uh, are in power you mean in the primaries in the primaries yeah i mean i think that's happening and that's exciting but i i want to just build off of uh one part of what Ari said too again voting is important it's important for activists to run but without social movement organizations that will hold uh uh, politicians accountable you know i think that the victories are going to be limited and more importantly these young people who are going you know idealistic young people committed passionate who are going into electoral politics if there aren't social movements that help to uh bolster them and back them when they take controversial positions they're going to be gobbled up into the vortex of of the democratic party uh which has been centrist moving for a while there's resistance to that now and that's hopeful uh, uh but we need uh campaigns outside of the electoral process that engages but also does more we're talking with Barbara Rainsby. Her book is Making All Black Lives Matter. And Ari Berman, his book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. We want to take another call. Um, L is on WBEZ. Nice to talk with you. Yes, hello. Hi. Do you have some thoughts about uh, activism or how, why people should care? Yes. Um, so a couple of things. I did not vote for the United States presidential uh, uh, election. And uh, unfortunately, I, I feel very responsible about it now. When Donald Trump was elected, which was not my choice, Hillary Clinton for sure was not my choice. I, I'm an independent. I felt like there was nobody to vote for, so hence I choose not to vote. Now, years after that, I realized uh, it was a huge mistake, and I should have come to some sort of a happy medium of some sort to actually make my voice or, uh, you know, bring my voice to the society, because now I do disagree with, with many things that is happening, and I wish I would have uh, have a say in it in some ways. Do you think about getting involved in a social movement? Do you think about joining together with other people and doing something about a cause you care about? So I think that is the problem of voting, because we are going through categorizing and stratifying the society. I think what the voting needs to stay as is that a personal opinion based on educating yourself, not becoming part of a group. That I do not like. I never do, because, first of all, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. I don't have much of a candidate at my hand to choose, but now I'm very, very 
concerned about the future of my kids, and I will have to educate myself. I think it's more than anything else to become part of something else, a social group where other people's opinion has to become yours. Otherwise, you're going to be judged. Well, that, that's not how all social sure. groups... Uh, Barbara Rainsby? Yeah. Um, Al, I just want to, you know, I, I hear you about being an independent being an independent thinker. That's why social movement organizations have to be radically democratic, which means there's a place at the table for all voices that people decide, you know, this is our common ground, this is what we agree on. But then after that, there's debate, there's discussion, there's differences of opinion, and there's struggle back and forth so that we all learn and grow. I think there are too many static organizations uh, that force a party line on people, but that's not all organizations. Um, Barbara, I know you're having an event this evening uh, surrounding your book. Yeah, and we'll be talking about a lot of these questions about uh, Chicago politics, about race, about uh, the role of black feminism in Chicago politics, and we'll be talking about my book. It'll be at uh, 6 o'clock tonight at the um, uh, SEIU headquarters on uh, South Halstead, uh, 2229 South Halstead. It's free. It's open to the public. There will be books there, but more importantly, there will be a lot of activists there uh, who would be happy to engage people about all these issues. The idea of reimagining freedom in the 21st century, that's an appealing thing. I think people would want to do that kind of thing. Well, yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, part of the movements that I've mentioned in the book and and talk about and have been a part of are not only practical movements trying to change policy, but they're also visionary movements that really are imagining a different kind of society and a different way we can live together. Ari Berman is also with us, and Barbara Rainsby, once again, is professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and her books, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Ari Berman is the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, is there one place in the country that you are keeping your eye on and thinking about um, their whole voting situation uh, more than others? I don't think I can narrow it down to one place, uh, but there are, there are a number of places that I'm focused on. I'm focused on Florida, which could restore voting rights to 1.4 million people. I'm focused on uh, Kansas, where one of the country's worst voter suppression advocates, the Secretary of State Chris Kobach, is running for governor. So I'm paying attention to that state. I'm focused on Wisconsin, uh, where Scott Walker is up for re-election that has had some of the most suppressive voting laws in the country. So I'm focused both on a lot of issues. There are a number of ballot initiatives in different states. For example, for automatic voter registration, for election day registration, uh, for nonpartisan redistricting, I'm focusing on those issues. And I'm focused on candidates, both who have good records on voting rights, which I cover, or bad records that are up for election and to see what's going to happen in their races. Because I really think these state races are going to be critical. State battles have become nationalized these days. And I think what's going to happen in the states will have a huge impact, not just on 2018, but as we gear up for the next presidential election in 2020. Ari Berman's a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about the uh, missing Washington Post columnist, the Saudi uh, official, Saudi dissident who's gone missing in Turkey. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 